for me, it was like, why is this person behaving that way? And why am I reacting this way? Or why do I have anxiety? Why do I feel insecure? Why do I have low self-worth? Why do I attract a certain type of personality, a person into my life? So figuring all that out was so important to me. This is Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara Swart-Bieber. Conversations on neuroplasticity, the science that proves every brain, even your brain, can change, no matter your mindset or stage in life. Each episode, Dr. Tara leads compelling conversations with familiar voices to explore how anyone, even you, can reinvent yourself. And now, here's Dr. Tara. Welcome to Reinvent Yourself. I'm Dr. Tara. And today, you're in for an extraordinary conversation, as I have a heart-to-heart with a woman who has successfully reinvented herself numerous times. Few entrepreneurs in this world have their fingerprints on a renowned brand. My guest today has birthed two of them. She is the British fashion magnate who co-founded the luxury footwear brand Jimmy Choo, as well as her own namesake brand, Tamara Mellon. She has experienced a career of reinvention, In 2014, she received the Women's Entrepreneurship Day Pioneer Award. In the 2010 Birthday Honours, she was appointed as an Officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE, by Queen Elizabeth II for services to the fashion industry. In 2013, she published her autobiography, In My Shoes, and I'm proud to call her my good friend. Please welcome Tamara Mellon. Hi, Tamara. Hello. Good to be here. So exciting. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good. Um, So I was thinking about our conversation and what crystallized for me about this podcast is that it's either about people who have reinvented themselves professionally or personally, or somebody who is standing at a crossroads and wants psychological or neuroscience input to help them navigate that change, or people who you might not expect, but are secretly or seriously interested in psychology and neuroscience and have applied that to their life, whether it's through manifestation or visualization or or in any other way, just interested in it. And I think it's a little known fact that you're kind of obsessed with psychology and neuroscience. I know not not many people know that. My fiance actually often teases me, you know, we're sitting at breakfast and he says, most people are reading the New York Times and you're reading the Psychiatric Times. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, the brain fascinates me. Um, it, it always has. And when we became friends, I found out during the pandemic that you'd read my book, The Source, is it seven times? So many times. I have it on repeat. So I have a physical copy next to my bed and I have it on audio. So I live in LA right now. So when I go for hikes, I put my earpods in and I listen to your book because I I feel like there's, there's always something that I need to be refreshed on or reminded of or a chapter that I want to review that's helpful at a certain point in my life. So mm-hmm. for me, it's a, it's a life manual that I carry with me. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. That makes me so happy. But tell me, because it is a slightly surprising fact that, and, and it shouldn't be, because I feel like I'm a neuroscientist that's really interested in fashion and beauty, and you're a fashion mogul who's interested in psychology and neuroscience, that those things shouldn't be mutually exclusive, but I feel like they still are seen by society as they don't really go together. So where did your interest in psychology, psychiatry and neuroscience start? 
You know, it started at a young age. Um, I remember being around probably 11 or 12 and someone saying to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a psychiatrist. Oh. And yes, I, I had, I've had these two loves, you know, my whole life. So I would, I loved fashion at that age. I was mm-hmm. always, my playtime was putting outfits together in my closet But also, for some reason, when someone said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a psychiatrist. I think there was a yearning to figure things out. Mm -hmm. And I think it often comes from our childhood, um, the environment we grew up in, um, not understanding why things, certain things are happening in our lives and wanting to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, they say that a lot of psychiatrists and psychiatry nurses go into that job because of something that happened in their childhood. So it's interesting for me to hear that somebody who's in a really different job maybe has the same thing kind of, you know, that's behind their interest in that subject, even if they didn't actually become a psychiatrist. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, for me, it was like, why, why is this person behaving that way? Right. Or, and why am I reacting this way? Or why do I have anxiety? Why do I feel insecure? Why do I have low self worth? Why do I attract a certain type of personality, a person into my life? So figuring all that out was so important to me. Wow. I mean, those are big questions for an 11, 12 year old to be starting to think. I don't think I was thinking (laughs) things like that at that age. No, no, I don't think I, I don't think I was consciously thinking those things that age, but subconsciously there was mm-hmm. a, a drive to figure it out. And then later in your life, I mean, you worked at British Vogue, you've run two massive businesses. How do you think wanting to and trying to figure those things out and reading about them? And I don't know if there's anything else that you've done that's you know contributed to your knowledge base has helped you as a leader, as a person, as a mom, as a partner? You know, I've also, um, you know, read books that actually help at work. Um, There's a book that I read probably almost 20 years ago now called Working with Emotional Intelligence. Um, And I remember I sent it out to my team and (laughs) they thought I was crazy. At that time, no one knew the difference between EQ, IQ, what no. was, you know, a working with emotional intelligence, but so much of it resonated and make, made sense to me. Um, so, yeah, so it's always, I'm always reading something, yeah, to fit, to, to kind of try and make things better. And, and you're absolutely right. I think 20 years ago, that was not a word that was used in business and leadership. And even in my experience of, being in business, which is only 15 years, it was not appreciated for the first half of that really at all. And it only became kind of something that people were interested in. I feel like once actual scanning technologies showed how it works in the brain and moved it away from being psychology, which was too intangible for most people in business and leadership. Yeah. When you could actually see it, yeah, like on an fMRI, see which part of the brain is lighting up. But I think there was a really interesting study, and I think it was at Harvard. Don't quote me on this. I might be wrong. It's, I picked this up somewhere that they realized that the most successful people in life have a higher EQ. Mm-hmm. So higher emotional intelligence, not higher IQ. Mm-hmm. So the people that like graduated from college with high IQ, yeah, sure, they do great. They will be partners at law firms and partners at accounting firms. But the mm-hmm. people who are the entrepreneurs, innovators, like 
leaders of industry actually have a very high level of emotional intelligence um, to do that, to do those jobs. Yeah, I think that your IQ obviously has to be a certain amount for you to be successful in those sorts of jobs, whether it's entrepreneur or professional services. But the EQ really makes a big difference. And actually, that leads me to my first example of something about you that I thought, wow, that's such a different way of thinking about something that I wouldn't have necessarily thought. And indeed, nobody in your industry had done before, which was when you created the pillow top shoe, which is seriously comfortable. And I'm saying that from personal experience, (laughs) as well as the fact that my friend Beth Bears wore a pair of the pillow top shoes to the Emmys a couple of years ago and said it was the only time that she managed to stand the whole evening and not feel like her feet had been crushed the next day. So tell us about that innovation, how the idea came about and you know what, what was important for you about doing that? Well, that that was interesting because that was really, that came out during COVID. So during COVID, we were all wearing slippers, even me. <laughs> I was at home in slippers and I was thinking, how are we all going to get our foot back into, you know, regular shoes again? Mm. You know, and I, I'm someone who I can run in heels. I have no problem in heels. You know, it's been, it's been a lot of practice over a lot of years. So, um, but even for me, I think, how am I going to get my foot back into regular shoes again? And I have a Ames chair at my dressing table and I was sitting Mm. at one day and I was like, wow, this cushion under my bottom is so comfortable. Why can't I have this under my foot? So mm-hmm. I sort of took deconstructed the chair, look how it, it was engineered and kind of recreated it on the sole of, of a foot. And I remember I called the Italian factories in the beginning. I was like, I want to make this teeny tiny little cushion and sew it on the top of the shoe. And they're like, you're crazy. It's never going to work. Um, so, you know, with a little bit of pushback, we managed to get it made. And it's I think it's one of the best innovations in women's shoes um, because mm. you literally wear like you're you feel like you're wearing slippers when you're wearing heels. Mm. Um, but I think it probably took a woman to figure that out. If you look at most shoe designers, they're all men's names, right? They all oh. do beautiful shoes. Christian Louboutin, Jean-Vito Rossi, Manolo Blahnik, mm-hmm. you know, Stuart Weitzman. Mm. These people, they're all men. So a lot of men design for shelf appeal. They don't mm-hmm. design for what it actually feels like on your body. So being a woman who actually wears my own product, I I want it to feel good, you know? And I think we also got through, you know, we're over that thing of you have to be in pain to be beautiful. You know, that mm. was that saying in the industry years ago. And, and we don't believe that anymore. You know, you can have both. So this was like, I really wanted to deliver to my customers. Like they can still wear a heel, but they can be comfortable. And what I love about that story is as you were talking, I was thinking about the six ways of thinking in the source. And just the logic of how you deconstructed that chair, obviously the innovation, the creativity, the emotional part is I'm a woman and my feet hurt when I wear, well, yours don't, but most women's feet hurt if they run in heels or wear them for a long time. Um, And then the motivation was both to disrupt the industry because you had that pushback, but also to take us away from that beauty equals pain kind of thing. And then obviously physicality comes into it because we're talking about actual pain and the shape of your body and so I think I've think I've touched on all oh intuition is the other one but I think I think you are really intuitive don't don't you I I think a lot of what I do is intuition I I didn't go to college right so Mm -hmm. so I left school at 16 
And I started working on a shop floor when I was 18 years old mm-hmm. and, and kind of built my career from that. I think a lot of what I do is by intuition. And I, and I think, I don't want to call it psychic. I don't know how to dis- what other word to use, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, predicting trends um, mm. is what I do for a living as well. You know, mm-hmm. I have to predict what women are going to want to wear mm-hmm. next, you know, for autumn, winter 23, right? um, yeah. a year ahead. And so it's, it's really is a gut intuition for where things are going. It's, there isn't really an amount of research you can do to predict it. Because no one really knows. And it's like, why do they say, why do designers come out with the same thing at the same time? How do you know? It's not like we don't have a conference to talk about it or, you know. We I've don't, always wondered that. But, yeah, no. <laughs> so it's like, you know, we don't talk to each other. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a gut intuition. I remember asking you during the pandemic about when it looked like it was finally coming to an end, about what you thought people would want from shoes. And you actually said it was the two extremes. It was the kind of the flat sneaker and then the like ultra high heel glamorous. Cause obviously we hadn't been able to do that. Although I think we all feared that we would no longer be able to walk if we did. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And I, I felt like, yeah, you do have to predict like the mood of a nation or a, you know, a demographic of people to be able to start thinking about your next season of designs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there were two conversations coming out of COVID. There was one from a, one group of women saying it's revenge dressing, right? <laughs> I cannot wait to get my heels back. And the other group of women were saying, I'm never wearing heels again. I'm only wearing flats. Mm-hmm. But I think the group of women who were saying, I'm only going to wear flats, I think what they were really saying is, I, I just won't be in pain anymore. Like I'm done with that. Mm-hmm. So my, my drive was to find a solution for them still be able to wear their heels and have no pain. Wow. I want to pick up on something that you said, because it's not a conversation that I would normally have, but you and I tend to have conversations together that we wouldn't normally have with anyone else, which is the word psychic. As a scientist, I've definitely always felt that, that I can't be talking about things like that professionally. But I would have to say that, and maybe it was the pandemic, And that time to introspect and be more mindful and have to think differently about the world. I feel like I've always been really intuitive as well. And in my industry, which for a large part was mostly coaching, I also thought about, okay, what's a disruptive sort of innovation I can bring into it? Or what's the trend going to be? And how can I stay at the edge of that? And and also I would say when I was a doctor, that intuition was part of how I diagnosed as well. It wasn't just the checklist of sort of practical things. But personally, I feel like in the last year or two, that my intuition, if you consider them to be on a spectrum, has almost gone towards being psychic. Have you had an experience like that? Uh, I mean, definitely. That I feel oh, like wow. my, yeah, my intuition has grown stronger. In a way, it's had to because during COVID, you know, you've got to, you're, you're locked up at home, but at the same time, you've still got to predict what somebody wants to wear. Mm-hmm. And so you need to have a strong a strong intuition for that. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's your senses can grow, right? Whichever mm. one you're, you're tapping into. And if you think about the fact that at the start of the pandemic, we had this global phenomenon of vivid dreaming. Now I was having these crazy vivid dreams and 
Then a journalist contacted me and said, can you give a neurological comment on this vivid dreaming phenomenon? And I, I was like, oh, is that a thing? I thought I, I knew it was happening to me, but I didn't, I didn't really have, you know, as much contact with people. So I didn't know it was happening. And apparently it's the first time that it's happened since the last world war. So it's the first time that everyone in the world was going through something similar, no matter who you were, where you were. And it was impacting our brains and that kind of anxiety dream sort of way. And it, and it manifested differently for different people. So if your last big anxiety was around a breakup, then you might be dreaming that your partner was going to leave you. Or if, well, I'll tell you what mine was. Mine was really strange. I was, And I think because as a child, I had a lot of separation anxiety from my mother. I dreamt that I was lost in a fun fair, but it was like a horror show kind of fun fair. And I, I you know, I was really anxious in the dream. Oh. I was trying to get out and I, and I was awful. Um, and then one of my coaching clients suddenly appeared in the dream and put his hand out and I grabbed his hand and he led me out of the fun fair. But as soon as we got into the sunshine, I said, well, now I've touched you, I could get COVID and die. <laughs> just, oh my God, I'm piling it on. <laughs> but talking about psychic, that day... That coaching client texted me at lunchtime and said, just checking in, how are you? And I looked on my phone and we hadn't texted each other for three months. That's, that's when the universe aligns. Like, like, how do you describe, what is that when you think of somebody, which it happens to all of us, that you maybe haven't spoken to for a long time? Hmm. You think of them and then they contact you. I mean, I can't really explain it as a scientist, but it's happened to me so many times. And so putting together the two things, I was just thinking about this whole, there is a psychological phenomenon of the collective unconscious, which is just, you know, things that we're not necessarily consciously aware of, but do affect us as a collective. And I think that was really amplified during the pandemic because suddenly it was a great equaliser of people. Okay, some people were locked up in a much nicer, bigger home with outdoor space than other people. But essentially we were all locked up. We were all living in fear the the threat was invisible and and maybe it magnified that thing that we used to have in tribal times which is almost like a wolf pack mentality that's connected yeah so instead of you know thousands of years ago tens of thousands of years ago we didn't have the the phone but you would have uh, intuition right if somebody was out hunting gathering that maybe something was wrong with them and you need to go and get them how does a mother know when something happens her child. Exactly. Have you got an example yeah. of that? Um, I, I don't have an example of that, but um, but very often you hear stories of you just know something's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So and you want to so you want to call your child or you want to contact somebody because you sense it. So there is. I don't think so we're going to uh, come up with the solution today. Should, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but there's definitely something. Yeah. It's it's the same thing as like you know um, I don't know if you remember I told when I told you about my mood board mm. right my vision board and how I, how that manifested yeah I, I I'm, I'm sure it's pr- a pretty similar thing because our listeners might not know that story I know you did touch on it in the Instagram live but but tell us again because it's such a interesting story this is such a fascinating uh, story. I was living in London, so I did the mood board probably in 2006 or seven, mm-hmm. And, and I, I didn't really think much of it at the time. I was with a girlfriend and we said, let's, let's, let's do a mood board or an action board mm-hmm. um, just for fun. Let's put things on it that we want to happen in our lives. Mm-hmm. So I made this 
board. It was, I had personal life. I had business. I had a home uh, and the location that I wanted to be in. Mm-hmm. I put it away and I didn't think about it. My 10 years later, I found the mood board and everything on that mood board happened. Wow. I mean, obviously I'm a proponent of them, but when I hear those stories, it still gets me every time. Yeah. And it's when I look back, it's, yeah, everything that was on that mood board actually happened to me. And be careful what you put on, because looking back, I would have worded, I I put a word, which is unusual. (laughs) Normally it's images, but I think I would have worded something differently. Yes. (laughs) Because now I'm living in a situation that was on my mood board and I should have maybe changed the situation a little bit. Not that I'm in a a bad situation, but, um, but, you know, yeah, be careful what you, what you put. Um, totally. I mean, that your one is a work in progress and you can yes. still do a new board. So we've talked about that before, but I have two kind of almost newer things that I've added to my whole idea of like, make an action board, visualize it becoming true, believe that it's going to come true, give gratitude for it, you know, for it being true. And the two are, be careful what you wish for, because once you start manifesting, it's so exponential that you kind of think, you know, like, I don't want to say what your word was, but you could have said the word that was a bit better than that one. And it probably would have come true. Um, it would have. I know. I know. I know. I know. Um, and the other one that I say is leave leave some space for magic because because mm. we're still limited by our own brains. However intuitive or psychic or innovative we have become, we still have an idea of, okay, this is the best thing that could happen to me. But as life goes on, that 10 years and now it's 10 plus years later, you're a completely different person to who you were in 2006. You've achieved you know, so much more than I, I guess you would have dreamed of. Same for me. And so I think, well, I don't want to be limited by what my brain is capable of thinking that I could achieve. I want to, and, and again, we're going back to that kind of, you know, psychic universal connection thing, leave some space for the universe or whatever higher power helps you to manifest the things that you want. Yes, because we often we can short ourselves mm. right, with our with our own brain. We don't believe that it could be as extensive, you know, as the universe wants to give us. Right? We we kind of make everything. We short everything, and not even knowingly. It's not like we're saying, "Oh, well, I could do that, but I'll just ask for something a bit less because you know I don't want to kind of ask for too much or I don't want to hope too much." It's literally that we have not yet imagined that our lives could be a certain way. And it's not even in our like sphere of thinking. And so I, I would say for me, if I think about, back to my vision boards of the last 15 years, that I'm thinking of my one in, in 2011 when I incorporated my business, that it had something, it, it was an advert, actually. It was the only year that I just put one image on my vision board. And it was of a beautiful horse kicking up water. And it was to do with being stable and having a loyal team and, you know, creating some disruption in the industry. And years later, I remembered what the advert was. And I was just like flabbergasted because it was a brand that was now a big part of my life, which in 2011, I would have never, ever thought that I would be able to afford or I would have that kind of lifestyle. And it just wasn't even on my radar. And that, yes, yeah, so we we can't even imagine what's possible. So I love that about leaving a little bit of space for the for the universe to do its magic. Yeah. So on that note, we're going to give ourselves a bit of space and take a quick break. 
and we'll be right back. You're listening to Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara. We'll be right back. Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara is proudly supported by emotional well-being by Raffles Hotels and Resorts. True luxury is not just about what you do. It's about how we make you feel. This is Dr. Tara. And if I'm going to stay at a hotel, it needs to be rejuvenating. I travel a lot, and even a single night away from home can be exhausting. I need a place to rest my head that is deeply invested in creating a destination designed for my well-being. That is why my best night's sleep away from home is when I stay at a Raffles hotel. Raffles takes a holistic approach to well-being, where guests are intuitively guided through thoughtfully curated experiences, spaces, and rituals, bringing a sense of wellness. Raffles is intentional when it comes to design for harmony and nutrition for pleasure, carefully curating a ritual program with a series of collaborators. The end result is the breath of fresh oxygen you need when away, whether for business or escape. This focus on emotional well-being is precisely what makes Raffles Hotels and Resorts a perfect partner to my podcast, as their focus and desire is for you to live your very best life. For more information on Raffles Hotels and Resorts, including details about their curated well-being programs, simply visit raffles.com today. That's raffles.com. Raffles, true luxury is not just about what you do. It's about how we make you feel. And now, back to the conversation. Tomorrow, there were so many things in the first section that we could pick up on. I think we definitely need like a part two as well. But one of the things that struck me was when you said, you know, I didn't go to college. I started on the shop floor at 18. And and I know there have been many things over, over the years, but just this recent thought about how are women going to get back into heels again? How do I think about what life's going to be like after the pandemic? So many people are what I call stuck on the wrong side of neuroplasticity. And I was one of those people. So I did go to university, obviously, and I actually went for nine years because I did preclinical medicine, my PhD, and then clinical medicine. And I did a vocational degree. So I felt like I had to be a doctor for the rest of my life. And it took me seven years until I decided to make a change. And it was a huge change. It was my whole identity from my adult life. It was every skill that I had honed. But you seem like someone, and this is really interesting to me because I think it will resonate with a lot of listeners who don't have my experience of somebody that's doing mini reinventions kind of all the time, like almost on a daily basis, but certainly on a short, shorter term cycle of continual reinvention. Does that resonate? Completely. I mean, I'm actually building a, a new action board right now. Um, so things that I want to happen, you know, hopefully over the next 10 years. Um, yeah. So I'm, yeah. So I guess for me, it's a, it's a daily progress. I wouldn't say I've had one big moment in my life Mm -hmm. that I can say everything changed, Mm -hmm. but it's been gradual over the last 20 years of, Mm -hmm. of learning. And so I, I do an annual action board. You do that too, right? No, I haven't. I haven't done one since the first one I did back in sort of 2006. So I'm now doing another one. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So you do really long-term ones because I would find it very, very hard to even envision what my life might look like in 10 years, probably even in five. Maybe because I've really like learned through neuroplasticity that 
life doesn't always pan out the way that you plan it. So I've learned as I've got older to a bit more go with the flow and be more like responsive rather than reactive. So if you're willing to to share, because I'm genuinely curious, because I'd love to be able to think in that way, what sort of things are on a 10-year action board? So business goals, Mm -hmm. money, it's funny, I'm almost embarrassed to say that. I don't know why we feel embarrassed to talk about money, but yeah, uh, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> put yeah. money. Yeah, I, I have yeah, money on it. I have uh, relationships on it. I, mm-hmm. I guess I think are in bigger spans of time mm-hmm. um, of where I want to be in big chunks of time, like ultimate goals. And what are, what's the ultimate goal that I'm, I'm working to long term? I really need to do this. Like the next time I see you, I'd love to talk about this more and see see your action board. Uh, I'll show it to you. Yeah. Yeah. And cool. this time, you know, w- when I built the first one, I did it on a, a physical board with magazine mm-hmm. cutouts. Mm-hmm. But the world has changed since then. Now I, I have it on my phone. You know, so I have a, uh, in my photos, I created an album called Action Board and oh. I'm storing images in there. So... You know, often I, you know, we're always like on our phones. Like sometimes I'll just flip to it and, mm. and I'll go through the images that I've put. And I think that's a driver as well. When you relook at the images, it, it's mm. a signal to your brain or it's a reminder that this is the direction that I want to go in. So you're more likely to strive in that direction. Oh, completely. I, I would say it's a must. You can't just make it and not look at it again. I mean, I, I do a mixture of physical and digital ones now, but I still have my one from 2016 next to my bed, because that was a big one for me. And although I achieved the things on it, it reminds me that huge things that you didn't think were possible are achievable. And in terms of the brain science of priming your brain to notice and grasp opportunities, continuing to look at it is really important because otherwise life gets in the way. And especially if it's a 10-year plan, it's quite easy to just focus on short-term things and forget that. But what I love about the 10-year plan is that it would help me to ask myself the question, is this opportunity one that's going to lead me towards my 10-year plan? And if it's not, I shouldn't do it. Exactly. Because I might get a really great work opportunity and it might be, for example, just saying as we discussed it, a lot of money. But I, And I've only really started doing it this year of saying, but that doesn't lead me towards what I really want to be doing. So I'm going to say no. And it's quite astounding for me because I just wasn't that good at saying no to things before. And there was a lot of this feeling of, well, you know, that pays the bills and then that's my passion project kind of thing. And I, I think I really need to work on not having those as, as two such separate things. A passion project should also pay the bills. I mean, that would be ideal, right? Well, the ultimate goal, I guess, in life is if you do what you're passionate about, the, the rest follows, the money mm. follows because you're in flow mm-hmm. right, of, of creating what you love. So, so the rest will follow rather yeah. than that that feeling of that's that struggle right mm. because yeah, I mean, you've got to do this you know mm-hmm. and it's that's it's almost like that feeling of resistance like I'm yeah. doing this to earn some money but I have the that feeling of resistance and I don't want to do it I mean obviously it, that's not always realistic yeah. but when you're doing what you're passionate about and you have that sense of flow it's the best feeling in the world completely and I actually feel like what we started off, you know, circled back to, which is people who go to higher education or have a vocational profession. I feel like maybe it's harder for me. I, that that feeling of oh, I should do that is is still ingrained there because 
I did what I should when I was a child and even when I was a teenager and even when I was in my 20s. And I was 34 when I woke up one day and thought, you know, because people said, oh, you're so smart. You should go to medical school. You're so smart. You should do a PhD. When, and that's when I thought, well, if I'm so smart, I should be doing what I really want to do. And I don't even know what that is. Well, sometimes being overeducated can make you risk adverse. Yeah. Right. Because you analyze too many of the outcomes rather than the intuition and the gut feeling. Mm. Yeah. One that's, of the my, things, that's my opinion. That's a really good one. I mean, one, you know, of the many things I admire about you, the fact that you're a risk taker and that you're innovative and that you do these continual reinventions. Those, those are definitely amongst the things. But I also know that you're very serious about your action boards, like me, because we have a friend who had a cork board up in her spare bedroom that apparently was her vision board, but it had her Wi-Fi code and some unpaid bills. <laughs> <laughs> podcast with her when she told me and then I told I knew that you would but you'd feel the same way about that as me so on this Instagram live I basically threw her her under a bus and said hey tomorrow what do you think of this and your face was so shocked (laughs) we're very serious about our action boards you can't have yeah your wi-fi passcode and your unpaid bills stuck on it I know. Uh, And, you know, I remember when I came to your house in the location that was on your vision board of 2006, and I knew that that had been on your vision board. And I walked in and I saw the view and I saw the house. And I I remember thinking that, you know, I knew that had been your vision and, and just getting this really strong sense that you do have to be very serious about this to make something that big come true. You can't be sort of saying, oh, yeah, well, I'd like, I'd like that, but either I didn't make the vision board or I made it, but I don't really look at it anymore. Um, although you put yours away for 10 years, but you obviously kept taking the, the steps. And that's what I'm so passionate about is that people don't just visualize a fantasy that they take action to make it come true. Yeah. I, I mean, I say I put it away, but it was, it, it was sort of tucked behind my bed. So I okay. think maybe on a subconscious level, at the, I knew it was there every day. Mm. Wow very subconscious. I mean, there is this thing, I can't remember if this is in my book, but, or if we've talked about it before, but have you heard of the psychological phenomenon called the Tetris effect? No, explain that to me. Okay. Did you play Tetris on a Game Boy when you were little? No, I didn't. (laughs) You're only a few years older than me, (laughs) but I definitely did. No. (laughs) Um, And I remember playing it till as late as I was allowed. And then when I had to put it away and go to sleep. When you close your eyes, you see the little bricks falling down because it's really imprinted on your, your retina and your brain. And, but the psychological effect is that the last thing that you've looked at at night or, the, or something that you've stared at intently, that imprints on your subconscious. But not everybody can visualize or is, is necessarily a very visual creature. And so it's interesting for me to hear you say that I created something I remembered what it looked like. I knew where it was and that kept it front of mind for me. And I, cause I do believe there are all sorts of different ways of, of manifesting. And some people write a list, some people are much more auditory. So, you know, maybe they could record something and listen to it. Like you said, you listen to the, 
audiobook. It's really interesting how differently that could work for people. I think even list making works. So my fiance is a list maker. Oh. And yeah, so he he has he has a list of everything he has to do. This is probably going to be an overshare, but I do find it interesting. <laughs> yeah. That he also had a list of women that he wanted to meet. Oh. And I was on a list before <gasps> we ever met as an uh, interesting woman that he wanted to meet. Oh my goodness. Isn't that isn't that crazy? That is so, crazy. Yeah. And I was at a business conference. We met at a business conference um, in Aspen. And I remember I was just standing there and he walked up to me and he looked at me and he went, are you tomorrow, Mellon? And I said, yes. He said, I'd like to have a private drink with you. And I thought, oh, wow, that's bold. <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, but, wow. But he... Um, I, so my name was on a list. And then at the conference we were at, they give you a list of everybody attending. And he obviously mm. looked through the list and he realized, he was like, oh my God, I have, that was, I made a note that I want to meet this woman and there's her name. So I'm going to find her find at her, this conference. Yeah. And he came and he found me. Wow. I mean, I love that story, but I have to say what's going on in the back of my mind is I'm <laughs> absolutely dying to know who else was on that list. <laughs> It's going to kill me for sharing that. <laughs> but he manifests with he lists. Ma- yeah. and Well, I mean, he completely <laughs> did. I mean, yeah, you've, you've been together for so long. And... We've been together for 11 years. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm laughing because this is obviously <laughs> going to go public. But like the next time I see him, even if you tell me privately, I'd be like, tell me what he was on that list. <laughs> on <the> list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is so funny. Oh my goodness. I think we need to take a break because we yeah. need to like, otherwise we're just going to get the giggles. Put this one behind us. Move on to a more serious topic. You're listening to Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara. We'll be right back. Dr. Tara's revolutionary take on neuroplasticity is having a profound impact on thousands and thousands of listeners and readers worldwide. If you are one of the many who are truly looking to reinvent yourself, but you don't know where to start, look no further than the MIT Executive Education Program. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology offers courses, both in person and online, that can give you a jumpstart on true transformation. In fact, Dr. Tara offers a six-week online MIT course called Neuroscience for Business, a program she designed specifically for leaders. It will challenge your brain to come at business and teamwork from a completely different perspective. For more information on MIT Executive Education, including details about Dr. Tara's six-week course, Neuroscience for Business, simply visit executive.mit.edu today. That's executive.mit.edu an extraordinary first step toward reinventing yourself. Just another reason why Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara is proud to be supported by MIT. MIT, join us in building a better world. And now, back to the conversation. Tamara, you mentioned that you had a story about Nicorette. Do you want to share that with our audience? Oh, what was interesting. So I've always, I I chewed Nicorette to stop smoking, but I was listening to a podcast the other day with somebody called Andrew Huberman from mm-hmm. uh, Stanford and mm-hmm. a doctor called Peter Tia. They mm-hmm. and they 
said on their podcast they tune Nicorette for focus. I was like, uh-huh. I was like, oh, yes. And and they believe it protects the brain from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Well, I mean, I did my, my PhD was on Parkinson's and I did do some nicotine receptor studies, actually. What did you find? Yeah. So, so I mean, there is a potential neuroprotective effect, but of course, it's very difficult to talk about because of the implication of nicotine and smoking. Yes. Um, and the, obviously the downsides of smoking on the cardiovascular system, which can also contribute to vascular dementia. So it's, but, but Nicorette, yeah, should be, should be a good one. Because it's because of not smoking it, because it's just in a, like a yeah. mint. It's pure nicotine. It's not pure nicotine. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. I have another story that maybe we could talk about. A friend of mine who is a fashion director at YouTube, a guy called Derek oh. Blasberg. Hmm. So he grew, grew up in Missouri. And as a kid, he had on his ceiling all people he admired. And he would look at these he loved fashion, so models or actresses or fashion people. And he would go to bed staring at his ceiling every night. And he now lives in New York and he's friends with all these people. I think that's such an incredible story because I think there are so many little boys and girls that maybe put aspirational pictures on their you know, bedroom walls. And I was just thinking the other day about the pictures that I had put on my bedroom wall when I was at university, still an undergraduate. And it was all about fashion and beauty. And, but that's absolutely not something I went into or had much of for almost 20 years. And now it's such a big part of my life. And I, I, I had forgotten. And I was kind of thinking, well, maybe everybody was like that when they were in their early 20s. But I remember my friends kind of remarking on the fact that I had all these, like, I got these glossy magazines and I ripped out the pictures and I put them on my wall and how, how much I loved that stuff, even though I never thought... It would be part of my life. And an interesting backstory when we did connect over the pandemic and become friends was that I had this image imprinted on my mind of a double page spread that I'd seen of you in a glossy magazine. Like I think I was 27 or 28. So you would have been like early 30s at the time. Are you in the 30s? Well, you're not, no, you're not that much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you were so glamorous and so accomplished and so fashionable. And I remember thinking like really admiring you, but also kind of never, ever thinking that we would be friends or there would be any like intersection in our lives. But now, you know, we're like, obviously, because you live in America and I live in England, we don't get to see each other that much, but we have made the effort and seen each other since the pandemic ended. And, and you know, we're super close. We both tell each other things that we don't tell anyone else. And it's just such a, a privilege. And, you know, for me, our friendship is like so special. So because of that, what I actually really want to highlight for people is that you have created an amazing life. You are very successful. You're beautiful. You're independently wealthy. (laughs) Um, Amazing mom. Um, But you haven't always had an easy life. Your life could have taken quite a different turn. Um, And I'm bringing this back full circle to your interest in psychiatry from a young age. So maybe you could explain that to people and and, and maybe share a little bit of of what made you take the right turn, because that could help so many young people. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, You know, I I grew up, I had a very, very difficult childhood. Um, My mother is... uh, 
has a narcissistic personality disorder or borderline. I don't know which way she would be diagnosed. Mm. Um, but it was, she was very cruel. And I think, you know, and that's why I failed at school. The amount of stress and anxieties, I couldn't retain information. Right. And so I've, I actually left school mm. failing everything. I left school with no qualifications. So they say daughters of narcissistic mothers take two paths. They either mm-hmm. become drug addicts or they become overachievers. Somehow mm. I overachieved and did both. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I, <laughs> um, and you know, the penny, the penny dropped for me at about 26 or 27. Mm-hmm. Um, I was using drugs to medicate pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think emotional it, pain, right? Emotional pain. Emotional pain and yeah. I think that's, for me, that's really what drug addiction is when people, they're just medicating their emotional pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but the penny dropped and I got scared. I, I thought, I do not want my life to go down this path. Um, I checked myself into rehab. And I remember at the time, um, you know, my parents were f- from a very different generation. I love my father to to bits, but from a very mm. different generation. He was born mm. in 1930. Mm. I, and I remember him saying to me, don't go to rehab because you'll be branded a junkie and no one uh, will be friends with you. Wow. I, like, like his fear of the stigma mm-hmm. around it. But I knew that I, I had to change something. And I think it was really my drive to want to do better. And my drive you know, my interest in psychology, I think, comes from having a mother who was really unwell mm. um, and wanting to figure out why is she like that? Why yeah. did this happen to me? Why do people behave like that? How could someone be so cruel to their own child? Yeah. And so that was really, you know, that's been my drive for all these years of constantly learning about psychology, being interested in neuroscience. Mm. Um you know, actually, when I sold Jimmy Choo, I said to my daughter, I said to Minty, I'm at a crossroads here. Mm. Maybe I'll go back to school and okay. and, and become a neuroscientist. Yeah. Wow. And, or I have a choice of starting another fashion company. And Minty was like, Mom, no, do what you know. <laughs> she was like... <laughs> I'm not sure you should go back to school, but it, it was a it was a, a thought, you know, that I had at that time because I uh, because I love it so much. That's I find amazing. it so interesting. So, for the record, for the listeners, you've actually been sober for is it 26 years now? 27 years, half 27. my life. Yeah, half your life. Wow. Which is which is unbelievable. I can't believe that much time has gone by. So, the most important thing to me is my daughter. Yeah, ha- I have been sober, my daughter's her whole life. She has mm. never known a mother not being sober. Mm. And that is an achievement that I'm really proud of. Yeah. Just out of interest, how do you think your life might have panned out differently if you hadn't overachieved in indulging with, with drugs or alcohol? <laughs> but if you had just been like a social drinker in the last 27 years and still raising a child, running your business, having a relationship... What difference do you think that would have made? I don't think I can be a social drinker. Okay. Or I'm afraid to to try it. Mm-hmm. So I would go out with my friends and I would say, I'm not having a drink tonight. And then I would go, oh, you know what, I'll have a glass of wine. 
Well, that one glass of wine was then a vodka, then it Mm. was a nightclub, then it was calling the dealer, and then it was like, oh my God, it's 6am and I've got to go to work. Okay. Right. So it was an inability to stop once I started. I wasn't a person, I never had a drink alone, if you can believe Mm -hmm. that in my life. I've never Mm -hmm. had a drink during the day, but Mm -hmm. it was the inability to stop it once it started. So I think people who can social drink and, you know, control it and maintain, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Like my fiance, I see him, he will have a glass of whiskey and he'll sip the glass of whiskey all night. You know, (laughs) that never happened. I would have like chugged it and asked for another one. (laughs) (laughs) And you you know, he said to me, the only thing wrong with Tamara is that she doesn't drink. He misses having someone to enjoy a nice glass of red wine with him. I know, but I think, I mean, the reason I asked is because I think it's a really important point to highlight, particularly at the moment post-pandemic, which is that people's alcohol consumption has become, it's become an issue, almost like a silent issue. So there are a lot of people that still function pretty well, but they are getting deficits in terms of their sleep quality and, you know, potentially their relationships and, and health concerns. So it's just really interesting to hear your view because I just keep one I want to keep drawing out things that will resonate with people and I think that that will resonate with people. Actually there was another thing I wanted to mention which we discussed very briefly which is that sort of you know despite your your beauty and and people knowing you you've really for a long time kept quite behind the scenes. There's the rare pictures of you in magazines or on Instagram but I said to you that over the summer that I'd noticed recently that you were coming forward more. And I remember at one point looking through your Instagram stories and seeing the first one and being like, wow, I'm putting a flame sign. And then <laughs> there were like subsequently like 10 photos. And I was like, I'm sending her 10 flames because every photo that's coming out is amazing. So what's the psychology behind that? What's happened physically or psychologically that's made you, you know, particularly at this stage of life, feel like coming forward more as as a woman? So naturally, I'm an introvert. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not an extrovert. And I do the extrovert things when I have to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm naturally sort of more comfortable being behind the scenes. But I suppose recently, um, I feel like there's been uh, an additional shift in the last year of of more confidence, You know, I've been practicing meditation, breathing techniques, and I've found that really helpful in shifting my perspective. But how long? um, How long do I do it for? No, how long have you been doing it that it's shifted your perspective and made you feel more confident? I would say probably probably over the last year. So I've really used uh, breathing techniques uh, for uh, regulating my emotions. Mm so there was an instance I can tell you, I was very upset about something and I was crying. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to go to this spiral. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do some a breathing exercise. Mm-hmm. And within three minutes, my perspective had changed. Wow. It's People don't realize how powerful the breath is yeah. um, and how you can relax your nervous system. So just the fact of exhaling out, sends a message to your nervous system that everything's mm-hmm. okay and you're relaxed. And I really discovered over the last year how powerful that is. 
That's so interesting because I suppose I've been doing those things for, for longer, but maybe not like to such an intense degree as you have in the last year. But I had a completely different experience, which is also related to being visible on Instagram, but a very different like direction of it, which is that I did this reel in my dressing or my friend's dressing gown and kind of in a rush because I'd had my makeup done for a wedding that we were going to that afternoon. And it was about resetting your nervous system. And as of today, it's had 1.8 million views. (gasps) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that made me realise that obviously it's much needed and and something that people are really interested in and has such an impact. Um, Because, you know, I think I've done some other reels that are equally interesting, but clearly not. <laughs> it didn't resonate as much no. as that one. Yeah. And and for me, knowing you and seeing you come forward like that, I knew that there was something behind it because I know that you haven't really wanted to do that before. And it's fascinating to hear that it's meditation and breathing. I mean, that's just so inspiring. And, and also, to be honest, you know, getting back into working out and feeling better, more confident about my body yeah. and the way I yeah. look and and, you know and doing those things. When you're naturally an introvert, putting yourself out there is actually, it's very difficult. And what's interesting is, you know, it's usually the public perception Mm. and the reality are two very different things. Mm. Yeah, Um, It's, you know, there's, you know, building Jimmy Choo in London, there was a lot of publicity and a lot of people Mm. who who made assumptions about me. Mm. And I, and often I would think, my God, if they only really knew that there is their assumptions they're making about me and what they're putting in the papers and the reality is so different. I know, I know. And you know, what's also interesting is that your fiance always has been saying for a long time, you should be out there more. You should like show your yourself as a person more. And what I love about that is that there is this sort of power behind the throne that always thought you should be doing it but you know you did it when you got ready and confident and everything but it's lovely that you've got that support as well I think as as a human like we said with these connected minds that that's well it's love really isn't it and that's like the most powerful confidence booster that you can have yeah he's he's incredibly supportive you know Mm. I mean he often tells me things that I don't believe so it's nice to have him say them you know he he'll say to me I think you're beautiful you know and I'm like really (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like really, <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. He was pushing me to put myself out there more. Tamara, I think it's really refreshing for people to hear that you don't think you're beautiful. <laughs> I think it makes <laughs> makes you f- sound like much more human, and makes us all feel better about ourselves. So that's um, very encouraging to hear. <laughs> this has been so amazing. I think I would love to do a part two because I feel like with your sort of spiral of reinvention and your goals and everything that even if it's like a year from now I feel like there would be like so much more stuff to add I think it'd be really fun to have a a circle back in a year and see what's happened what we put on our action boards and what's happened okay yeah that's a deal (laughs) so if people want to follow you in the meantime where's the best place to like see what you're up to and what's happening with the shoes and everything so uh, we're on Instagram. It's my name, Tamara Mellon. So I'm pretty easy to find, whether it's mm-hmm. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, and my website is just tamaramellon.com. Tamara Mellon, what a privilege it's been to discuss your personal journey. Thank you for your friendship, your generosity of spirit, and for being my guest today. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I always enjoy talking to you and I always learn so much from you. Thank oh, you. Thank you. 
That's all for this episode of Reinvent Yourself. Remember, no matter your mindset or stage of life, any brain, even your brain, can change. Even you can reinvent yourself. I'm Dr. Tara, and I'll see you next time. If you have a question or a comment for Dr. Tara, email or send an audio recording of your question to drtara at knox.studio. Dr. Tara's latest book, The Source, is available wherever books are sold. This has been Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara, a Knox Studios podcast. All rights 2022 Knox Studios. Produced by Mark Steele, Nadir Tavangar, Shahada Kari, and Jason Bashur. Written by Dr. Tara Swartbieber, Mark Steele, and Tamara Mellon. Engineered and sound designed by Knox Studios. Original music composed and produced by Sundry Souls.